This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Most Canadians are proud of our healthcare system. Most Canadians will also acknowledge that there are ways in which the system can be improved. Nowhere is this more evident than access to vision care in Canada. Many Canadians continue to struggle to access a basic eye exam, despite evidence that shows that such an annual examination can detect eye disease early. Prevention is better than cure, right? Access to healthcare is both an equity issue and an increasingly urgent political issue as our population ages. Ensuring Canadians can access vision-saving medications and treatments in a timely fashion is becoming a matter of national concern. Today we discuss access to vision care in Canada. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta. Today we wrap up our coverage of the Vision 2020 summit that took place on February 12th in Ottawa. We turn our attention in today's program to the last of the three panels that took place at the event. This panel was a discussion that considered issues of access and equity in Canadian vision care. with topics ranging from existing treatments and services to regulatory frameworks and pharmacare opportunities for collaboration and increased access were a central consideration today on the show we'll hear a couple of interviews i did with two panelists from the third panel we'll hear from jennifer yurasevic the vice president healthcare operations for vision loss rehabilitation canada but first Let's hear my interview with Dr. Aaron Patel, the chair for the Canadian Association of Optometrists Insurance Industry Working Group and past president of the Alberta Association of Optometrists. Dr. Patel, welcome to the Pulse. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you are an optometrist, so let me ask you what I am sure is a basic question. How important is that eye exam? No, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think it's something that uh, a lot of people, when you meet in the street, they feel sometimes they haven't had an eye exam, and you ask them why, and they're like, "Well, I see great. I don't <laughs> think I have a problem." You ask them sometimes if their children have had an eye exam, they say their children see wonderful, so they don't get an eye exam. So that kind of perception that I see well, therefore I don't need an eye exam, mm-hmm. is very much out there. Without an eye exam, you can miss things, and I think that's kind of the general. Uh, idea of why eye exams are important is mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, well, that's a really good point and I can share a bit of an anecdote from my own life because I'm legally blind and so as a kid I would go right up to the TV to watch and that was kind of a given. But my brother would scooch up there by the TV as well and as most parents are inclined to do they thought he was aping because you know she's in front of the TV he wants to be right there too. It turns out when he got that eye exam that he in fact had vision problems himself and needed glasses nowhere near as as severe as mine but uh it just goes to show you that eye exams are actually quite important and if they're that important dr patel um how likely is it that canadians have access to this eye exam you know it's just something that we we're definitely working uh from a, a national perspective and in a public relations perspective to try and get that that word out there's a campaign such as the think about your eyes mm-hmm. campaign that was successful in the united states and now we're we're bringing to canada to try and 
educate nationally about the importance of getting that, that routine eye exam and using different modalities to, to try and get that message across. I promise you we'll talk about other things besides the eye exam. But given that it's so important, I'm sure you've heard about things like the CNIB mobile eye van that goes around and delivers these eye exams. And of course, we've heard about ritual health and e-health. Are these measures helping to bridge that gap, both in perception and also in access? Anytime that we can try and detect vision loss early, it's definitely beneficial. There's definitely differences between comprehensive eye exam and a vision screening. And that's one of the things that the Canadian Association of Optometrists always wants to, to communicate is that, uh, you know, a full comprehensive eye exam with your optometrist is really what we're hoping that people will get. And there are vision eye exam guidelines that are out there to tell what age appropriate numbers of eye exams you should have. So, uh, so between the ages of six months to nine months, people should be having their first eye exam and then another eye exam before they're five years old. And then annually, up until they're 19. And then between that 19 to 64-year-old 60, age um, could be every two to three years, depending on the age. And then after the age of 65, yearly. So this is kind of a, a complex message to get out there, but utilizing the, the different modalities between advertising, the, the campaigns such as the mobile IVAN, and, um, and messages like this would be very helpful to communicate that. I think the, um, the 19 to 65-year-old age group is most likely to drop the ball. But just expanding the conversation a, a little bit, you were on a panel today that looked at the white paper that looked into this issue of access and equitable access of that to healthcare. Now, we are all very proud of our healthcare system, but what are some of the issues and challenges that came up during the panel? One of the big issues that we, we face across Canada is the diversity of coverage. I mean, healthcare is provincially mm -hmm. mandated and regulated. So you'll have some provinces where the scope and the coverage is definitely different from others. So some provinces don't even have coverage for children to get eye exams or seniors. Whereas other ones, you know, the children are always covered up until their 19th birthday. And then as soon as you turn 65, you're covered again to the end of your life. So trying to, to get that access across the, the country. We talked a lot about travel. There's, mm -hmm. you know, for many people, long distances. And unfortunately, for some eye care treatments, they require injections, for example, and people have to travel long distances. And people will forego di treatment if it's just too inconvenient. And that's something that would be really beneficial that we could address and try and increase access to care from both... Uh, a pharmaceutical standpoint and also an axis of actual treatment. The other missing piece, I would imagine, is a national pharmacare strategy because we've heard of the stories of, a, of people not having access to vision-saving drugs or finding them prohibitively expensive of a private insurance that doesn't cover it. So is that something that we've given some thought to as we move forward in our conversation about access to health care and vision care? Pharmacare and, and what it means is, I think, a this double-edged sword. And I mean, every, this is almost you start getting into opinion as opposed to, you know, where the, where the fact is. And I don't know if the white paper clearly set out that, you know, that was the, the absolute solution mm. for everything because it, it does come with that, you know, you want care, you want access, but you don't want minimal access. You want to have a robust formulary, not here's your access to medicine, but you don't have access to the good medicine. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's always the battle is that we want access to good medicine at a reasonable price. And mm -hmm. how do you manage that and 
who's got the answers to that? Yeah, one of your colleagues put it really well. We want to ensure access, equal access to healthcare, but we want to make sure it's not equal bad access to healthcare. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah, um, yeah. One of the things I uh, was so interested in, in is just the fact that you've done some work in other countries like the Honduras. And I wonder if there's a way that we can make a comparison about the state of vision care in some of those places, which we often perceive as being less resourced and less able and equipped to handle vision care. But if there are also models that work in places like Honduras that we could transport here? You know, I'm actually quite proud of the, the Canadian system and having traveled the, the world and, saw, and, and seeing healthcare in, in other places. And I've even practiced in the United States for quite a while mm-hmm. that we are very fortunate here. Our access is one of the highest in the world. Our access to drugs is the highest in the world. So I necessarily don't feel, when I go down to some of the eye care trips, they're healthcare is actually the is the um these charitable health trips like people mm-hmm. will line up in communities and this is you know when was the last time you had something checked well when was the last time that someone came to our village or our mm-hmm. town and and performed one of these um uh, these mission trips so that's not what we want here i don't no. think and i think that the only benefits i would say is that some of the medications that we were able to prescribe were substantially more affordable there were some glaucoma drops that would be equivalent to about $5. So way more affordable than the, than what they would be here sometimes. It's very interesting to hear your perspective because I think it's always nice to have a global conversation and isn't don't we live in a global village? I think that's what people say. Uh, there was also another interesting anecdote that came up during your panel about a lady who had managed to create a network of all of her healthcare providers. Are we at a stage when we talk about access to healthcare? Are we at a stage where we could see that kind of comprehensive, patient-centered healthcare, so that all of the different providers are talking to each other? I mean, it's still provincially dictated. I know that Alberta is working on one called Connect Care. Mm-hmm. Um, but even to add to that question, I think the future is, is very promising when we look at AI as well. Mm. And we tar- start looking at that, you know, each healthcare provider finds something. If I find a condition, I might not know about another condition, but those two tie together and they very much are diagnostic of uh, solves the puzzle for us. And mm-hmm. I think that basically connecting the information that each of the providers can detect and is treating and combine that with technology and AI to help get there quicker is, is really the future. And we've had some conversation with government. And so does government not have a role here to try and bridge some of the gaps in healthcare and vision care delivery? Yeah, I mean, certainly vision care does fall under currently a lot of the mandate of the mm-hmm. government. There's a resource situation. You know, everybody wants access and Mm -hmm. access is not getting any less expensive. The diagnostic equipment is becoming more and more expensive. And so, you know, without coming up with a way of funding this, you have to cut somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to limit your resources. And so I think that's where the difficult decisions come from. And so just like everything else in this world, I think that uh, innovation and technology is really where where the answers Mm-hmm. The answers lie not just um, legislating mm-hmm. solutions. It's it's allowing technology to allow us to solve these problems for low, lower costs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes an event like this so in- interesting to be at because usually you feel like everyone works in their own silos. The healthcare providers are off doing their own thing. The researchers are off doing their own thing. And you've got the consumer groups off doing their own thing. Are you happy to be at an event like this that has brought everybody together in the same room? Yeah, no, I thought this was... Uh, 
was an amazing event. And, you know, there's, you come to some events and you always wonder if you're going to learn something and you feel like, you know, are you just adding to the conversation? Are you going to take something away from it? And the, the one thing that was, I took away from this was that I don't feel as uh, an optometrist that sometimes I have the ability to deal with when people are vi- losing vision to help counsel on, on what the next steps are. I'm working on trying to save their vision and it's almost like I'm in denial too that there's uh, vision loss occurring and I would like to have better tools and I was talking um, with the CEO of the Ophthalmological Society about maybe cooperating so that there's not this feeling that I'm referring to the ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist is going to counsel them mm-hmm. and the ophthalmologist you know, has a limited time and thinks that the optometrist is going to uh, help counsel them on, on how to deal with the mental side of, mm-hmm. of, of losing vision. And I think that's one thing that came out of this conference for me, but there's so many other things in terms of this, uh, of these white papers and uh, their impact on, on vision care. Del, one last question before I let you go. What is the difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist? No, that's a, that's a great question and very much confused in the industry. There's actually, you know, we call it the three O's. There's an optician and an optician usually helps with your glasses and helps adjust and make your glasses. An optometrist is often considered your primary eye care professional. Sometimes uh, my friends call it like the eye dentist. This is the <laughs> the first person you go to see. And an optometrist has done four years of usually an undergraduate and then four years of training as an optometrist. They have a doctorate. They can prescribe medications. They can treat, but they can't do surgery. And so the way that the system has evolved now is that the ophthalmologist takes over the care. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for such an eye-opening conversation. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. You as well. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Aaron Patel, the chair for the Canadian Association of Optometrists Insurance Industry Working Group and past president of the Alberta Association of Optometrists. To close out our coverage, let's hear an interview I did with Jennifer Yerosevic, the Vice President, Healthcare Operations for Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada. Jennifer, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you for having me. We want to get into your conversation and the discussion that you had as part of the panel at Vision 2020. But first, what is Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada? Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada uh, was launched in 2018 by the Canadian National Institute for the Blind uh, as a healthcare organization uh, that meets the vision rehabilitation needs of Canadians uh, with sight loss uh, from coast to coast. Forgive me for asking you a basic question, but what is vision rehab? So what is included and more importantly, what is left out? Is uh, independent living skills included? What about technical uh, technology training? Is that something that also falls within the rubric of uh, vision rehab? Yes. So vision loss rehabilitation includes helping people with all levels of vision loss uh, to uh, either develop uh, if they have no sight or restore key daily living skills. So independent living, um, orientation mobility, which is learning how to uh, move in space and and get from one place to another, um, as well as using uh, technology or uh, low vision devices. Uh, So our low vision therapy program uh, focuses on um, teaching people how to use the remaining sight uh, as well as devices that help uh, enhance their vision. So whether that's um, a magnifier, a smartphone, or closed-circuit television, um, technology is ever-evolving. That technology plays a, a real significant role in all of our programs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who went through the Vision Rehab program at the CNIB, this must have been... Oh, 
I'm about to age myself, but just as I hit adulthood, so maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, I really found it useful and continue to find those skills useful. So I think the question begs to be asked, how easily accessible and available are these services to Canadians, irrespective of where they live? They're available from coast to coast and everywhere in between. Uh, we are funded uh, in all provinces except for the province of Quebec that has a different funding model and they have uh, a rehab centres that provide service there. Uh, but in all of the other provinces and territories, uh, Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada um, ha- employs uh, specialists who are certified um, to teach all of these essential skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have designated offices, I would say, in a lot of places um, shared space uh, with CNIB, but we uh, do cover uh, the large geographical areas. So uh, primarily, a lot of our services happen in people's homes or in their communities. Um, so our specialists are on the road traveling uh, quite frequently um, to make sure that we're providing that right service at the right time um, in the right environment as well. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting shift away because traditionally, I think a lot of people would expect to have these services delivered in an institutional setting. But if you can actually work with someone in their own home or in their own environment, it means that you're setting them up for success in an environment which they're familiar with. Absolutely. And then they're building these transferable skills that when they do go into a new environment, uh, or a new community that they are able to take the knowledge that they have learned in a more familiar community um, and then transfer those skills into other areas as well. I want to focus on the talk that you gave at the panel. Um, we had this conference that it was attended by, I would say, well over 100 people representing mm-hmm. various stakeholders. Your panel dealt with access and equity issues within healthcare. Give us the gist of what you wanted to convey to the people at the conference. Sure, I was really inspired by uh, the keynote speaker uh, who who spoke uh, in one area of her her talk around technology and access. And, and I think that there is um, a perception that technology um, now, because everything is available either on the web or on an app, um, that that means everything is accessible. And and for me, that I think is still one of our greatest barriers uh, we see in healthcare across Canada. Um, uh, not necessarily new, but a, a real push around virtual care, um, uh, client portals, and being able to be well connected. And I think for people with uh, sight loss across Canada, uh, this could be something that is, uh, you know, really useful. Uh, one of the barriers that we continue to face um, a- in most areas is the fact that these client portals or um, electronic medical records. Uh, are not accessible and uh, that there is still a barrier to accessing just because it's built in in a a format that's electronic doesn't mean that it's built with the same accessibility um, out of the box. And we've come a long ways, but I I would say that we have a lot more ways to go. Um, I think that we can improve access to care uh, and providing the right service at the right time if we are able to leverage technology. Um, You know, as you can imagine, this is a as you know, this is a big country, and if we can provide some level of support early on in somebody's journey and not having to wait for a specialist to be able to get out in the community um, that maybe is six or seven uh, hours away, but we could um, do a, a client portal uh, interaction with them um, where you have a specialist and uh, a client sitting in their own home and being able to sort of direct some of that care um, starting right off the bat of their, their vision loss journey, then we we will be a lot further along. Um, so that was one of the, the key areas. 
I think one of the other pieces that, you know, um, is really important uh, that we hear a lot from uh, the clients that we work with is that there really is needed to have much better linkages between um, all healthcare providers, whether it's nurses, personal support workers um, across. So we need a comprehensive vision care strategy that really maximizes health and independence of the growing number of people um, with loss, uh, vision loss or blindness. And that vision rehabilitation really is one of those keys of providing that service in the home that can reduce some of those other um, health care uh, costs across the continuum of health care. I just want to return to the point about virtual health care and creating a client portal. When you're dealing with seniors in particular, you might be dealing with someone who is not only experiencing vision loss for the first time in their lives, but you might be dealing with someone who's never used a computer or an iPad before. So just handing them the technology isn't enough. Are you not also having to think through the implications of the digital divide in Canada? Absolutely. Um, And I think that, you know, when we look at strategy and work in this area over um, the past number of years and, and even probably over the next five years, um, demographics are changing and, and more and more people are wanting to leverage technology. Uh, but the training changes things. You know, once somebody learns how uh, to use uh, a device and, and sees the benefit of, of devices, um, sometimes, especially if it's really practical to their uh, lifestyle, um, you know, if we're able to show and demonstrate how a smartphone can help somebody um, read their uh, medication on their uh uh, pills and stuff that they need for their diabetes. Um, they're more, and they're they're doing it every single day or a few times a day. They're more apt to uh, try something else on it on a piece of technology. Um, if they're able to download a book because they were an avid reader and they want to be able to listen to a book, um, that's connecting them with a piece of technology now that we can extend that to um, being able to use that technology or another piece of technology in order to. Um, leverage uh, independence. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe they want to be able to find uh, what different labels are in their, their pantry so that they can cook independently still. Uh, when we show them different things, either technology or even just techniques, um, it's a game changer for people that they realize that they're, they don't have to be dependent on other social services, um, that they can continue to do things if they want to on their own. And for many people, if they're dealing with vision loss, they might also have other things that are ongoing. So there's a lot of comorbidity in this population, especially when you deal with seniors. I just want to return to the point about comprehensive and, dare I say it, patient-centered healthcare. Are we moving towards a model of delivery where if you were a patient, all of your various healthcare providers could access the one portal so that there's greater information sharing, not just between the patient and the healthcare provider, but also between different healthcare providers? You've just sort of nailed what I think a dream would be is <laughs> to be able to have you know, a, a center of care where um, somebody doesn't have to tell their story over and over again, or a caregiver doesn't have to take time off work in order to be at all medical appointments so that they can, on behalf of their um, aging parent or uh, family member, uh, tell the story that you can tell the story once. And we can take a look at how, you know, medication is maybe impacting um, somebody's vision that day. And so maybe we're going to choose not to do street crossings today, and we may choose in our mobility program to work on some indoor mobility because um, their vision is being affected and there's a safety element or there's a risk of a fall um, because of, you know, where their sugar levels are. If we can be more interconnected in some of those pieces, I think 
that'll be much more beneficial to patient-centered or person-centered care approach that I think we all want to strive to. Mm -hmm. And I know that today we're just scratching the surface and we could go much deeper and talk much longer. But just before I let you go, you were at the conference. I believe you stayed the whole day. Why is an event like this valuable to you? Why was it important that everybody came together and talked about vision care in Canada in 2020? It's an incredible opportunity to leverage, you know, 2020 um, as this opportunity. And I, as I looked around the room, I saw people who I had worked with um, over the course of uh, my career in, in this field. Um, but to bring people together uh, on a common vision of, of where we want to take uh, vision care. And uh, and for me, as a, I would say, launching our new organization, uh, really raising the profile of we're here all for the same reason, to help to improve health outcomes. Um, and we need to start by looking at the whole person uh, and making sure that we are uh, streamlining things and making it easier uh, for everybody to uh, participate. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the program today. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. That was Jennifer Yurasevic, the Vice President, Healthcare Operations for Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada. Now, that wraps up our coverage for the Canadian Vision 2020 Summit. And let me say, I really enjoyed being on this journey with all of you. Now, I'm visually impaired myself, and I must admit, I was equal parts curious and nervous about embarking on covering this conference. I wondered what the result of putting people with such diverse opinions in the same room might be. Would they all get along? What would come out of it? I think, however, there was a robust exchange of ideas. No one is pushing a cure on anybody, but the research and development, particularly in areas of stem cell research and gene therapies, is progressing by leaps and bounds. And of course, even as technology is opening up opportunities for greater integration of the blind and partially sighted community, it's obvious that there are barriers that persist, both attitudinal and structural barriers at that. Nevertheless, To say that the year 2020 is full of promise would perhaps be an understatement. I would encourage you to download our podcast and revisit all of our conversations. The podcast is available at your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse for some additional thoughts that I have that I haven't included on the programs. I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Aaron Patel and Jennifer Yurasevic. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager at AMI-audio. Most of all, thank you for listening to the program. We'd love to get your feedback. Write to feedback at ami.ca, find us on Twitter at AMI-audio, and use the hashtag PulseAMI, or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's one 866 509-4545 and let us know if we can play the, the audio on the program. Well, thank you so much for listening in to the program. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. 
Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.